The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to Stock Tech. My name is Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is James Greenhouse. Hi, James. Hello, Gaurav. And also with us is James Carlyle. Good day, James. Good morning. James, we were speaking, uh, what, a, a week or so ago, and we were talking about strategies for managing the route, uh, what, how to get over the feeling of dread when markets are relentlessly falling. A week later, and I think we're now back in bull territory, the markets just jumped 20% in what, two weeks or something? It's been a really unexpected rally. What do you think now, guys? Are we still, I mean, I had a buying, uh, a buy rule where I was just mindlessly um, putting money into the market. I've stopped that now because I'm a bit worried about where the market is now. How are you two feeling about how we're going? And, um, and are you still nervous or are you happier now the market has risen? JG, maybe you first? Yeah, maybe it maybe feels a bit fast. The rally feels a bit fast to me, and I, I still think um, what I've been saying is I still think there's a lot of capital raisings coming. And the good thing for directors and companies is this makes the ability to raise capital a bit easier because the share prices have bounced back. So I, I still think there'll be um, there's still a lot of scared companies and directors out there who are going to be thinking, yeah, we're going to use this rally to raise capital because we've been caught a bit short. So I, I'm 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 still quite. Um, I think the rally is perhaps a bit strange because I think, as, as I said before last week, maybe that the this, the economic downturn is really, effect, the effects are still to play out. So it's quite a big, and it's going to be a very, very big downturn that could have other sort of, um, you know, second second order consequences. So I, I do worry about it. And I'm I'm uh, I probably, uh, yeah, like, like you, Gaurav, I've sort of stopped buying in lots of ways. And if you look at a lot of our recommendations, they're, as of today, they're starting to look like they're over our buy prices in many mm-hmm. cases. So the, if, uh, if the rally keeps going, we're going to start to need to, uh, our buy list is going to start contracting again. JC? Um, yeah, that's. I mean, that's as it should be, isn't it? So you know, we've had some opportunities, and um, there've been some big rallies. It, in a funny sort of way, you know, the big the big rallies are always a bit unexpected, aren't they? Aren't they? Almost by definition, because yeah. um, you know everyone's um, got that sort of bearish mentality, and then it sort of um, you know someone flicks a switch, and um, uh, but yeah, it, it, I, I suppose yeah, it, it seems at the moment like it's reflecting a pretty rosy view um, of, of what might happen. And I think our market is, is kind of reflecting what's happened, happening in the, in the other big global markets. And it's in it, but we're in a slightly different position. I mean, they're, they're all sort of reflecting the fact that um, they're coming into summer and the cases, they seem to have got through a lot of cases, um, uh, or at least they've got started on that sort of route towards what I think the markets are assuming is going to be um, the herd immunity approach. And they're talking about lockdowns being um, relaxed in, in a month or two. Mm. Um, look, it, it could get a lot worse before it gets better still. So I'm, I'm, I, I still think the market's baking in a fairly rosy view of that. But we're in a slightly different position down here um, because we're coming into uh, winter. And so I don't quite know how that um, plays on it. It looks like our lockdown may need to be a bit longer, um, and 
So I suppose international stocks may be a slightly better position than than the purely domestic sort of consumer focused ones are still I, I think um you know it's it's looking quite difficult for them still. I don't actually understand this rally. It seems to me that the rally is following the course of the virus when it ought yes. to be following the course of the economy. And yes. I would say even though the the virus, the contagion looks a lot better now, in my view, the economy looks way worse now than I would have thought a couple of weeks ago. Well, I think, I think the, 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 just, the markets are anticipating that the, the lockdowns are going to be ending sooner than yeah. they had previously thought. And so, so that, that seems to me rational. If, if, know, that, is if that's rational? correct, well, whether they're right or not, that's the question. I mean, well, even whether listening the market's right about it. All you need to do is listen to the political leaders, and they're all talking about still three months and 90 sort of days um, more to come. Oh, and are, then are they talking are, about that in the Northern Hemisphere? I don't think. Oh, you know, not in, in the Northern Spain, Hemisphere. But, but well, that's, but that's the point. Yeah. I mean, yeah. because the, so I think we're following the global markets, and a lot of our stocks are, you know, impacted by what's going on in global markets. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, here, yeah, that's right. I mean, it could be. And it's going to be industries that take a lot longer to come back online. I think The Economist wrote about a handful of industries that might take a year, sort of two years to come back. And they um, they talked about um, sporting events, uh, casinos, um, concerts, and uh, big entertainment venues, um, things like that. They reckon won't come back for years. Um, and same with international travel. There could be you know, another 12 months, maybe more, before international travel gets freed. So this is... Well, a long, yeah, um, much longer lasting than we may have thought going into it. I think that the the international travel is an interesting one because um, if the playbook in Australia and New Zealand is is for eradication, then um, obviously the only way that can work is if you then keep your border, international borders locked down. Yeah. So if that is what what we're attempting, and if we do achieve it, which I think is a slim possibility, but you know. I, um, in some respects, it's, I, I just don't know the probabilities of that occurring. But anyway, it, it presumes that you keep your borders locked down and presumably until there's a vaccine. So mm. um, for us, international travel looks a dim prospect for quite a long time. Um, in the Northern Hemisphere, back in Europe, I imagine they'll be traveling around much, much sooner yep. than that. Yeah. Well, like, like JG, I'm actually really concerned about the second order effects of all this. We're going to see... Um, sort of unemployment in double digits, which we haven't seen for 20 or 30 years. And what does that do in particular? I'm concerned about the property market. Um, you know, right. so much of the Australian economy is propped up by this really strong 30-year property, property bull run. And if that comes to an end, I just, I, I worry about, then we can start worrying about the, the health of the banks. We can start worrying about um, all sorts of ancillary industries and services. And, and then you end up with a, not just a virus-induced, slowdown but a proper hardcore cyclical slowdown and that that could be enduring and it would be certainly painful i, th I think that you, you've got to differentiate between um an economy that can't support jobs um and an economy which we're sort of putting into an induced coma as it were yep. hmm. um and you know looking at it optimistically we're we're, we're in the latter case so Hopefully, when we sort of come out of that induced coma, we the, the jobs come back because this is a, an economy, you know, absent the pandemic, this is an economy that can support a lot of jobs. There's a lot of product, productivity growth and all that. Um, the danger is that if you keep it locked down too long, then 
you know, those those jobs start to disappear, the economy does start to decline and the induced coma, the organs start to shut down. Sorry to use that. Um, but, you know, it, it gets a bit, you know, the situation is it's much harder to, to restart the economy if we shut down for five, six months than if we shut down for one, two, three. That's yeah. my worry, James. Is exactly right. I, I think that yeah, it's just so. I think everyone, even probably us, a couple of weeks ago, was expecting this sort of V-shaped recovery, mm. and I think as it's gone on, it's just seemed um, unlikely that the economy is going to bounce back that quickly, and for for a whole lot of reasons, whether that sort of government um, wants to not be blamed for a second wave or whatever, um, and it just seems yeah that the, as as you say, Gorev, uh, the risks of the property market uh, contracting uh, could could also create these sort of longer term effects. So it, it's quite worrying. Yeah. Um, the other thing that is certainly happening, we're getting a whole lot of equity raises now, almost uh, on a daily basis. A day doesn't buy without one company or another announcing a significant raise. The terms of these raises are quite different and it might be worthwhile, gents, to go through um, a capital raising playbook and just to come up with strategies of getting through a whole bunch of capital raises and how we can best exploit um, some of the good ones. So, um, JG, um, we might begin with you. Are capital raisings a problem or are they an opportunity? Uh, they're both. <laughs> uh, I think the the problem is for companies that have a lot of debt or where directors don't have a lot of skin in the game or where the, they don't have a lot of liquidity to get through the crisis, um, they almost become emergency raisings like we like we saw with WebJet and Flight Centre. Um, and so you end up having this dilution that means that um, the, there's so, much, so many more shares on issue that um, the the share the, the share prices of you know thirty dollars for flight center and fourteen dollars for webjet we're never going to see again because there's so many more shares on issue now so that, that so it is it is a problem um, but it it also can be for um, for both institutional and retail shareholders that the, there can be opportunities within these capital raisings because they can be at heavy discounts. Um, so yeah, so if, if the if the discounts are at um, uh, you know if they're at, sometimes even when they're only ten or fifteen percent, if the value mm-hmm. is you know is above that, then that's still a good still a good deal. Um, but that you can actually and also capital raising tends to depress share prices, so you can find out um, you can actually buy into these capital raisings and then you know a year or two later because the the crisis has passed, the shares will have recovered a little bit. So so they they can be both. They're a problem and an opportunity. JC, what are the options available for businesses that need to raise capital? There are lots of different types of ways that they can issue equity. What is most beneficial for a shareholder and which ones should we be looking out for? Well, the the most beneficial for all shareholders, the fairest approach is the um, uh, renounceable uh, entitlement issue or rights issue, um, which is when all shareholders get uh, the right to take part pro rata to their shareholdings. Um, but crucially, and this is the renounceable aspect, is you, you also, if, if you don't want to participate, you have the opportunity to renounce your rights or to sell them into the market. So where you have a deeply discounted rights issue, those rights to buy shares at that deep discount um, have a value themselves mm-hmm. and you can sell them. And that by selling those rights, you effectively um, uh, get compensated for the amount of any dilution. So mm-hmm. If, every, if all shareholders dip into their pockets and the ones who don't want to do that sell the right to do that to the other ones, um, then, then th- that's, the, that's the fairest outcome. 
Um, the trouble with that is that there's a period of time uh, required to organize it. Um, and a company that's desperate for the money um, doesn't necessarily have that time. And also the share price is moving around during that time. Um, so what companies do is they tend to underwrite. They get a um, you know a, a broker to um, underwrite a particular price, and that they'll take all the shares if if the if the price falls below that. Um, and uh, and the the danger is that in such big such volatile markets as this, um, a lot of uh, brokers aren't willing to underwrite these issues. Some of the more volatile stocks. Um, and so they're having to resort to placements, which is where um, uh, a company just goes to institutional shareholders and says, "Look, here's a bunch of shares. Uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, here's a bunch of shares. Give us, give us some money." Um, and private shareholders are kind of cut out of the picture. Uh, what you can have in addition to the placement is a share um, purchase plan, which is where um, private investors are then offered to buy up to thirty thousand dollars, and it's just been increased fifteen thousand to thirty thousand dollars each. Um, and you know, because that's a fixed amount, depending on the issue, thirty thousand dollars could actually see you get more than your fair share. It could actually, in some circumstances, be be better for private shareholders. Except that if there's a if it's a very desirable issue, then you're likely to be scaled back. Um, and so you're back to where you started. So um, it's a little bit complicated. Um, you've got rights issues on the one hand, renounceable mm -hmm. or non-renounceable. And then on the other hand, you've got placements, um, which may or may not have a share purchase plan to go alongside them. What we're seeing at the moment, though, which is particularly advantageous, as well as the ability to buy $30,000 worth of stock in a share purchase plan at a potentially discounted level, is the ability in the entitlement issue to also take up more than your allotment. So um, so that's, again, advantageous. So with Reese, for example, um, we um, up upgraded Reese yesterday, and they are allowing uh, shareholders to do that as well. So you can apply for more than your allotment at $7.60. So obviously, the more shares you get at $7.60 is pretty pretty good with the share price near nine dollars so so there are ways of um you know of taking advantage of these capital raisings um and and getting shares at a discounted level and you you know you can either um, sell your sell your existing shares on market to to take that up or um or sell them later on uh, if you're happy to hold a, a fairly large waiting for for a period but do you, do you think i mean i think that's absolutely right and you're you're um it makes sense to apply for more but um, where it's that advantageous, is it, um, you know, are you likely to actually be allocated the extra shares? Well, the thing I actually think in this, the, the the great thing about crises like this is they scare people, and you know, as as, as unfortunately as value investors, we're we're there to take advantage of that of people being scared. And so, yeah, while I think that there are certainly um, capital raisings where people know that you know seven dollars sixty for Reese is a good price, there's also going to be plenty of other shareholders out there who are just petrified, or because they're or well, they're not around or not available, um, probably not overseas at the moment, um, but they're they, for some for one reason or another they don't want to take up those shares. So it, it is actually um, worthwhile, in, in my view, applying for more than your allotment. If because um, you, you never know. I, I've certainly in the past, I've certainly um, in certain stock-specific instances applied for more than um, my my share that I was allotted, and got I had some fantastic opportunities where I was allotted shares at very very low prices, and I thought, why isn't everyone doing this? So you know, there there are there there can be cases where people are just for whatever reason too scared to take up those, or they don't have the cash available. So, um, I, especially, I do especially with a lot of calls. 
moment. I do wonder if, if whether that game has been played already, though, JG. I, th- I think everyone's experienced the GFC, and everyone knows that the GFC was a great time to buy those discounted share purchase plans. From what I've been reading, a lot of investors and brokers are already onto this, and I'm not sure there'll be as much fear this time as there was back then, and that might be the peak. That might have been the peak of the opportunity to buy these um, huge volumes of, of SPPs. I'd be surprised if you can get them now because everyone, um, I've just heard it so often now that, that you know, watch out for these um, capital raisings, great opportunity. In the GFC, no one thought it was great. It was really scary back then to, to buy into these companies. And I don't think agree, it agree. Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, no, I, I think that's all I wanted to say. Um, the one, one other point to make would be um, what happens if you're not a shareholder and you see a business um, raising a lot of equity? Is that often a signal that it's, uh, it, is that a good time to buy into that company? Or, or would you say the opportunity has been missed and it's only really for insiders? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. I actually think that there, that's um, possibly a good chance to buy. I and mean, obviously, it depends on every situation because there's going to be a lot of companies out there that are not good quality businesses raising capital. So it doesn't, you know, so there may, and there's certainly been, I can think of plenty of examples in the past of companies which have raised capital, then they've done it again and again and again, and yeah. they've basically blown all that, all that up, all that capital up. But generally, I'd say if they're good businesses, um, you know, especially if they're well run, which isn't necessarily the case for a lot of non-owner manage businesses, then yeah, to, to, to buy um, to buy the, just the shares on market at the time they're having their capital raising, I think is probably often a reasonably good strategy. I mean, I know some people will say, well, why isn't market efficient? But I think often the market is is worried and scared during those uh, periods of, of uh, capital raising. So I, I, I think it's a good idea. But I don't know, do you, do you have a different view, James? Um, I think, no, I think that's absolutely right. I think... Uh, it's it's a case of looking for the quality as 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 often is the case um you know what you don't want to be doing is throwing good money after bad you want to be looking for good quality businesses that are just you know got a temporary um issue due to the, the due to the pandemic um and i mean it's an interesting thing that can happen um I mean, I, I hate sort of trying to second guess what the market's doing, but it's an interesting thing with webjet for example which um uh, the shares are being offered under the rights issue for for 170, and the share price. Um, so the X rights price, um, factoring in the dilution, was about 250, and the share price sort of hovering around that point. Um, you could imagine that there would be plenty of shareholders wanting to sell um, at that price. Yes. Um, in order to take up uh, shares in the in the rights issue, which is non-renounceable. So you've kind of got a gun to your head. You've got to take up your shares at 170. So there's going to be plenty of people while the shares are at a... So during the period, and I think um, there was also this... This situation also played out with Thorn last year where the price, um, you know, was 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 kind of pushed a bit low, I think, during the course of the raising. Then had a sudden bounce. Of course, it's gone, gone terribly, <laughs> terribly worse since then. But anyway, um, so I think, uh, you know, sometimes uh, th- there can be a bit of extra selling pressure because people are trying to position themselves to, to take part in the rights issue. And also what happens sometimes is that people take up their rights entitlement or they take up their what they're entitled to in the rights issue and then they sell on market. And if a lot of people do that, the share price can actually then fall down to that um, raising price anyway. And, and that, ha- that, can, that actually takes um, can take a couple of weeks, maybe even a month or so for that to happen. But I've seen that happen a lot. Um, and if people don't want to increase their exposure to a company, that's one way of profiting from the share purchase. 
plan. But I, um, I, I think if people are, are not wanting to increase their exposure, then the, the tendency is going to be to want to sell before um, exercising the rights rather because you then if, if you if you sell yes. after exercising your rights then you then you're you know you've got potentially double your holding for for a period of for time which mm-hmm. um which is a bit a bit scary so um you know you and and this is all subject to tax tax as well of course so it's amazing how often it does happen though how often a raising price ends up being the share price a little little bit down the road well i think we've seen that not as much this time and i'm wondering why that is i i, I think it as as the sort of capital raisings roll on, where they might get a bit more fatigue and capital gets a bit scarcer because people have already, you know, already given their companies a whole lot of money. And so I wonder whether that, because certainly so far we haven't really seen most of the capital raisings that have been done so far. They've sort of approached the sometimes got near the share price, but they've never, sorry, the off entitlement price, but they've never actually got that close to it. And a lot of them have bounced, have, have actually risen quite significantly since. But I wonder as, you know, as, as time goes on, whether scarce capital means that those that that will happen more often and how do you decide which ones are the best everyone's got a limited pool of money um, to allocate to some of these raisings and there's an awful lot of them there'll be more to come do you go for the best um, deal at the time do you just go for your favorite companies or do you go for the ones that don't need capital the ones that desperately need capital JG, what's your um, strategy at the moment? Yeah, I think my this is this is I think what I was saying last time was try and be flexible, and to me this is part of being flexible during this period, and this won't apply to everyone because everyone has different circumstances. But yeah, I've changed my strategy a little bit during this period. Is that I'm going for. Um, probably buying more of the companies that need capital um, because I, I think there's going to be some capital raisings coming. Um, so I think, as I mentioned, I bought some uh, Tab Corp last time. I've got a few more things on my list. I mean, even James Hardy, which we'll get to soon. Um, I don't own a stake in that yet, but I might buy some soon because I think you know, I think even for James Hardy, there might be a chance of getting uh, getting some stocks uh, at a discounted price. So, um, so yeah, so you, you can... Um, there is the chance to actually buy into some of these businesses that need or good businesses that you think might need capital. And but for me, it's it's less about. I know and again, I know some of the other analysts um, are more into the sort of flipping and the quick, uh, quicking, quick, uh, quick flipping of the capital raisings. But for me, it's more about buying the businesses that are really struggling during this period that I want to then hold for you know for decades because that's really my strategy. JC. Well, I think if we're talking about stocks in your portfolio, which you're by definition there um, happy to hold, um, you know, it really just comes down to which are offering the biggest discounts. Um, you know, you've got to you've got to participate in those um, and potentially uh, um, sell um, on market to um, you know to to, the, to then fine tune where you want your weighting to be, but. Mm-hmm. You know, you're passing up. You know, if there's a share price at a dollar, and uh, sorry, a share price at three dollars, and they're raising money at two dollars, then you're giving a lot away if you don't participate. So, um, you know, whereas if there's a share price at three dollars and they're raising money at two ninety, well, you know, maybe it's not the worth the capital gains tax or the costs or whatever um, in terms of uh, of you know um, selling and rebuying and doing all that sort of thing. JC, would you rather, for example, have uh, have a go at something like Cochlear or NextDC that doesn't really need the capital and the discount is quite small, but the quality of the business is very high? Or would you rather pursue maybe a Webjet or a flight center where the discount's enormous, the risk is greater, um, and the quality of the business isn't quite 
um, as good? Well, how would you compare it, those? Is this photos? assuming they're in my portfolio? Yes, assuming they're in your portfolio. Yeah. Well, it, as I say, it just comes down to the discount. Um, okay. And so where, you just go you know, for the best you, price. Okay. Yeah, and look, and you ought to be you ought to find some way of participating in all of them, really, where there's a decent discount. Yep. Sell um, your organs. You know, sell your blood. Sell your children. Well, no, but you can sell you can sell the, the stocks themselves. So or, or you can do that if you want to. Um, I'd so, rather so, sell the children. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep my organs. Thanks, but um, <laughs> they. Uh, you can sell the stocks themselves. Sub, again, I've got to say, subject to costs and tax, and I don't, we we can't make comments on those things. But, mm-hmm. but um, you know, you, you you can find the money within your portfolio to participate. Um, and look, some people like to position themselves beforehand to do that. Um, but I think you can do that, um, you know, uh, on spec, as it were. Um, it depends a bit on your portfolio. If you've got a portfolio full of things which are going to be raising money, then that might be more difficult. I mean. Uh, I tend to sort of avoid um, much debt, so um, I'm touch wood not too badly positioned um, in terms of that. I do like the opportunity where there's a decent business that's been poorly financed and the cap raising is a chance um, just to, to fix that financing. I think after that, I mean, Transurban came to, comes to mind a little bit. Um, it's not, not Transurban, um, Trans-Pacific. Um, what's it called now? It's called something else now. Clean it? away. Clean, clean away. away. Sorry, yes, clean away. Um, there was a business that was a, a reasonably decent quality business, but very poorly financed after years of binge acquiring. Um, and I think when you see um, a cap raising or uh, um, uh, some sort of um, debt clearance going on there, that that's often a good opportunity. And I'm thinking of oil search now. I, I think there's a fundamentally decent asset there that's been um, carrying too much debt, um, and you might get a chance. Um, you know, the the oil price is just all over the place, so maybe that's not a, a good example. But there's a reasonable um, uh, little opportunity sitting there, although it's extremely high risk, which is why we're not um, we're not recommending it for everyone. I, I think that can be the case, but but um, at the same time, you've got to wonder why uh, companies have debt, um, and frequently it's because. You know they've been pouring money. In, you know they're capital intensive businesses, and they've been absorbing um, capital over the years. And so sometimes when that debt gets refinanced, I mean, I suppose this is your point. If they, if it's a quality asset, then hopefully it hasn't been gobbling up capital over the years. But um, yeah, uh, or, that, that's really the distinction that needs to be made, isn't it? And and you know, like there are businesses that can um, that require capital that are still high quality. And I'm thinking um, along infrastructure lines here, so something like Transurban or Sydney Airport. So, so, so to me, Sydney Airport's a great example. It's, I think that the capital structure is wrong for Sydney Airport. I think it's just carrying too much debt in that structure and they're doing it to get cute with their tax. And, um, you know, if, if an owner was operating that business, I think they'd structure that capital in a very different way. Um, and... You, I think now will be a time where they look at their capital structure and the the equity raising that's coming, and it is coming, um, might be a, a, the time to correct that. Um, and that, 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 that for me would be a great signal to to go in and, and start buying. Well, it's unfortunate, isn't it, that the um, you know that the rules and regulations um, you know incentivize different um, capital structures, isn't it? Because I, I wonder, uh, you know, why. <laughs> why I think really needs much debt, but um, you know, you could just uh, I mean, you you know, if you if you uh, happy to settle for slightly lower returns but much lower risk, then mm. um, you know that that's fine, and everyone um, 
confronting their own situation um, uh, as they wish. Now, it might be good to finish this section off with a bit of a um, some speculation, which I know you love to do, JC. But which <laughs> businesses do you have your eye on that may need to raise capital? Are you Do you have half a hand on the trigger? Are you looking at any in particular that you reckon look vulnerable? Uh, well... Um, I think there's a lot of businesses that look vulnerable. Um, it's, uh, I mean, Sydney Airport is. We just talked about it. Yeah. Is, um, I mean, the thing about it is that it's got enough liquidity, um, and I mean, it has probably got too much debt, but it's, but it, but it can, it, it, it can see itself through. The problem is that it's got covenants, and mm. uh, if you stop making profits and cash flow for a protracted period, those covenants are going to come to bite. Um, you know, and the most, some of the most extraordinary businesses we were talking earlier about REA Group. I mean, that has a bit of debt, and uh, you know, if if its revenues completely dry up, then who's to say? You know, um, and you know, it's we're in a slightly peculiar situation where companies which can normally support plenty of debt, uh, or a little bit anyway, um, mm. you know, are having to raise money just because they're they're breaching covenants and um and there's you know the, the bankers are being a bit um sniffy hmm. uh jg yeah and i think it's the ones i mentioned before I mean, it's the ones with a lot of debt so um so i think things like sydney airport tab corp i think is is an obvious case um hmm. i think a lot of the other infrastructure things like atlas arteria which i think we'd have a a review coming up on and you know potentially transurban i know they've all said i mean center group um they've all said that um that they have enough liquidity to get through for the next um for the next little while but i, I actually think that's a ruse i think it's it's really just the directors trying oh, yeah. to um make sure that the, 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 the make increase the share price so that they can then have a capital raising a preventative capital raising um so i, I think there's still a lot of those to come um and it's it's not just those it's the it's the it's the businesses that are struggling with liquidity in this environment so it's a lot of retailers um still don't think the is out of the out of the uh, yeah. out of the out of the question there and i think there'll be a lot more retail capital raisings come including yeah. amongst ones you wouldn't necessarily expect so i just think there's there's just this has just been an the word you know if everyone's using the word unprecedented but it is and um and yeah there's just a lot of and and and, and as, as i keep saying this hasn't yet happened it's only it's, it's only it's it's um we're only really in the very early stages of the shutdown um, in terms of businesses just not getting enough revenue. So it just takes a while for directors to to go, oh, hey, okay, we're really suffering here. We've suddenly got no revenue or revenues are 20% of what they used to be. And, you know, there's no no business on the ASX can go for very long without having, with with no revenue um, and and still paying a certain amount of costs. They, mm. they, they, they just can't. Uh, so I just think those, um, and any business which is which has a lot of debt, which um, is struggling with, uh, with, with liquidity um, or is at all affected by any sort of shutdown, even if it's only for three months, I think is going to raise capital. Well, ARB is another interesting yes. one, isn't it? Because I think they've actually got net cash. But, but the right. problem, problem is if you just start, if you take the revenue away for six months, that, that's going to turn very quickly into net debt. Yep, and as, um, as Mickey said in his review, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah, mainly right. a retailer, and so yeah, yeah. All, largely yeah. a retailer. So yeah, all these businesses that look like they they're fine, they don't have debt, but yeah, they, they if you take the revenue away, they they're, they're going to suffer. I think it's also interesting to think about, um, you know, how difficult it is for companies to organize uh, capital raisings and to make decisions about this sort of thing, um, given that all the directors are sitting at home, 
you know, uh, yeah. walking the dog. <laughs> you know, it's 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 uh, it's 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 difficult to get together and to 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 sort it all out. So I, I would expect all these things to be a little bit delayed. Yep, um, exactly. What's and, really exciting? And talking it's about okay. rents, you know, with your, with your landlord, and that's all that sort of thing. All those negotiations just take a little bit longer when when everyone's sitting at home. Yeah. What's really exciting about this moment is that usually capital raisings come after a big mistake has been made um, for some sort of um, big outlay in the future. Um, it usually comes with um, risk or with lower quality or capital intensive businesses, and now. I just think everyone is going to raise capital. I think Seek is a really high chance yep. of raising capital. I agree. These Seek's great assets. Transurban is, is going to raise capital. The, the two yep. casinos, which are good assets, they're going to raise capital. Yep. Tapcorp is 100% going to raise capital. Yep. Centre Group, great asset, going to raise capital. Um, there's a whole bunch of good quality assets that in you know six months ago, you wouldn't think would need to raise money, even in a deep, deep recession. And they are going to come to market now. And I think that's a really... Good opportunity. So I've, I've trying to, I'm trying to build um, a bit more of a cash buffer at the moment to um, uh, to try and save up for, for some good assets that will come to market for, for capital. And um, I don't think you necessarily have to be shareholders. I think that helps, obviously, if you can. But it's just buying um, when these businesses are raising capital or repairing balance sheets. And I think that's the other part of it. It's not just that they need capital. I think there's going to be an active choice among management that debt is bad and they're going to swap debt for equity in their capital structure. So I th- the one thing I'd say is you have to be slightly careful with that because um, an Auckland airport is the perfect example of why. Because so I um, so I bought that and Sydney airport a, a few weeks back, and I um, uh, decided that that having both of them was was foolish. So I actually, I made the decision to sell the Auckland airport, and I sold it the day before the capital yeah. raising was announced. And I was mm. I patted myself on the back. I said to myself, <laughs> you know, before the market opened, I, oh well done for getting out of that. Um, and the price then was about four ninety five or something. I got. Hmm. Um, it announced a capital raising for four forty. Was it um, ten for yeah. one or one for ten? Um, and uh, and the share price is now five sixty six. So the share price has gone up fifteen um, percent, uh, having having announced its capital raising. Um, so just on the face of it, the capital raising was only dilutive by five or ten percent. Hmm. Sorry, yeah. five or ten cents per share. Because it's a one for ten at a you know ten percent discount, um, and and yet the sh- and the, the share price has gone up because well the markets have been going up but also um, investors relieved that it now has the, um, the the corrected balance sheet. So I think if you if you sell in anticipation of the capital raising in the high quality assets which are going to not struggle to get the money, um, I, I just wonder whether you know you don't have to fear the capital raising that much. I suspect mm. Sydney Airport. I think is a good chance of raising some money, but I suspect it'll get it just as easily as Auckland Airport has. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think we're actually. certainly not suggesting you sell. Well, I'm not suggesting anyone sell in anticipation of capital raisings. Uh, I think that would be yeah, because you're exactly yeah. right there. You you can miss out on opportunities by doing that. Speaking of opportunities, JG, let's get on to James Hardy, which um, I think is is the first upgrade of James Hardy uh, ever. I think for II, would that be correct? That is correct. Yeah, this is one that I think um, it took us a while to warm up to, and that's partly because it operates in an industry renowned for crappiness. Um, but this is actually a business that's quite high quality. Tell us what differentiates James Hardy from its um, uh, less illustrious peers. 
Yes, well, it took me a while to, to get to grips with it anyway. Because um, you're, you're exactly right. I sort of lumped it in with other building materials companies and it, it's just a, a mental shortcut, which we all need to be careful of, that um, it was the wrong thing to do. And I, I actually thought that we would never get another opportunity to buy James Hardy, um, given that the um, with the changeover managing director uh, last year, that um, that the stock sort of shot up. And now here we are where we actually um, have, have, have had another opportunity to buy. I mean, so James Hardy makes fibre cement, and um, and that is the reason why that is um, a good product is because it is superior to a lot of different cladding materials, and particularly in the US where uh, they still use a bit of wood and a lot of vinyl um, and other expensive materials such as brick and stucco. Um, so uh, fibre cement is a fairly expensive type of cladding, but but it's it's what makes it good is it's durable and um, and it doesn't it's it's weatherproof it's fireproof it's woodpecker proof um, it's, a, it's a whole lot of <laughs> it's a whole lot of different um, things that proof it's it's, it's, a, it's a good product and that's really why um, this is a fairly good business and why and the other reason why it's such a good business is because um, in North America which is where they make most of their sales and money is uh, they dominate the market and it's 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 a complete domination it's a sort of 90 percent market share really and there are economies you- of scale Okay, I was going to say, can you explain? I think that's always been something I have not really understood. Why I can understand why fibre cement as a product is taking cladding share. I don't quite understand why James Hardy has, as you say, 90% market share in fibre cement. This is not a difficult product to make, is it? No, I, I think it, it is. However... Um, uh, I, I think the, the the thing with James Hardy, and a lot of the, often the, the, these market positions become entrenched because of historical reasons. And why I think they have that market share is they've met over time, and I, I couldn't tell you exactly how they've managed to um, get good relationships with the builders because they need to. Um, it's a it's a product where they need to have a good relationship with the builders. They need to be because it's a fairly heavy product. They need to have. Um, uh, good distribution um, in place. They need to have their factories in the right place, and they tend to be sort of quite strong in in certain geographic areas of of the US. Um, so it's it's a partly a historical fact, but it's the fact that they um, are, just have good relationships with the builders, and people don't want to try a new product because in in the in the past, what's happened, including with some of James Hardy products in, for example, New Zealand, they had problems with uh, with water tightness there. And so if you're if you're a new player coming to the US market and you've just um, got this new fiber cement product one, you don't have the relationships with these massive builders that they have over there. But two, and you know, do you really want to try and put on uh, put on a product on a house as a builder? Um, get a relationship with this new person it might be slightly cheaper. But then, then you know, five years down the track, the 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 homeowner calls you and said, "Look, oh, it's all it's all shattering, or it's broken, or um, or my house burnt down, or, or the woodpeckers so have gotten take- to it." <laughs> Yeah, woodpeckers have gotten to it. So yeah, so there's just a lot of risk with taking on a new product. And I think somehow, historically, James Hardy has managed to get these relationships with its builders. It's put its factories in the right place. It's put its um, it's put its distribution, it's got its distribution right. And it's got a product that actually works and uh, and, and works pretty well. And it's, it's, it's uh, compared to the existing product. So I think that's what is really behind this company's competitive advantage. I imagine there's manufacturing scale as well. So yes, if a new absolutely. competitor was to come in, I'm not sure they would be able to offer it cheaper at all, would they? 
No, exactly right, and 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 yeah, it's this this guy. It's also a heavy product, so it makes it hard to yeah. import. So it it, it chips um, if you have to move at long distances with, without the right equipment or without the right distribution. Um, it can chip, it can break. Um, so you need the right. So it's not really something you can import. And and you're right, it it, it requires quite a bit of scale to make these these sort of sheets of what seems like a fairly basic, you know, basic material of, of pulp and cement and so on. Um, it, it's, it's, you need to have a certain scale to, to manufacture it cheaply enough. And, I, I think that's the other key point is, is I learned from looking at cement businesses that, um, that a, a, a raw material that you might think is quite low value and easy to replicate um, can actually um, grant really high um, uh, moats if you're able to transport it um, and other people can't because it's quite heavy and cheap. Transporting a heavy and cheap material is actually really difficult. So where yes. you place your distribution and manufacturing, that becomes your competitive advantage. And that's why um, cement businesses operate these little local monopolies all around the world. And they all have pretty decent um, returns. It's for exact, that exact reason. Yes, that's right. Exactly. So JG, we've established that this is a better than average business. It's got it's it's um, delivered really strong returns on capital over a long period of time, but it's also a cyclical one. And we're heading into some pretty pretty dire headwinds in in the US. I would have thought. Is this really the time to be buying James Hardy? Yes, <laughs> I think that's it's a fantastic question, and and you can always try and uh, finesse it. And so we could think, okay, well maybe we should wait a year and see how bad the U.S. recession is. But uh, as we all know, um, buying stocks is about pricing, about buying buying at the right price. And and we know that um, not we want to anchor on the recent price, but in February James Hardy was over thirty two dollars. Uh, we managed to upgrade it; it's not far above 30, uh, sorry above uh, seventeen dollars. It's a, bit, a little bit over that now, unfortunately. Um, but so, you know you can finesse it too much because I mean uh, we, we don't actually know how far um, profits are going to fall in the US recession and, and clearly profits are going to fall for James Hardy but I, I mean based on the numbers I did I mean even if you see a sort of 30% decline in earnings it still doesn't look expensive I mean for this sort of business it should trade on a reasonably high multiple given the um, given the growth potential and the market dominance and I, I just think that you know a $17 price um, even even with a recession coming is a pretty good deal and there's a lot of again still a lot of optionality with the european business they recently bought that uh, that could end up being um could end up doing quite well so yeah i'm, I'm pretty comfortable with the fact that yeah we're buying it sort of in, in the before a recession's even begun but you know that's just a function of the fact the price is just so much cheaper now hmm. i guess everyone has questions about the asbestos litigation and you're probably tired of answering them but how about we do that one more time <laughs> um, I mean, there's there's going to be a certain number of people for whom James Hardy, uh, its past manufacturer of asbestos, is a, is a deal breaker, and, um, and and the reality is that we the asbestos liabilities are a, um, a known unknown. We we can't completely be sure that James Hardy will never be liable again for uh, for any third wave of asbestos liabilities. Um, but what what I think it's important to realise is you know as a shareholder and even and I know, you know certainly in the past this company has had a pretty dodgy period it's had some pretty dodgy directors um, but one thing that really reassures me and I you know I, I'm 
I have quite an ethical bent to my uh, investing, but I would I would still buy James Hardy. And the reason why is because uh, when uh, Louis Grease, the former managing director, came in in, in the you know, mid two thousands, um, he set up this uh, or helped facilitate, I suppose, is, is uh, and he re- he regards it as one of his best achievements, is to put in place this facility to compensate victims. And this is pr- quite unusual around the world. I mean, a lot of companies in the US, for example, went back bankrupt to, to avoid their liabilities to, to victims. And yeah, so we can all say that James Hattie didn't do the right thing, but what they did do is they put in place this facility to compensate victims. And since then, they've paid more than a billion US dollars into that fund, and that fund is is compensating victims. And yes, you know, there's been some questions about whether it's enough, and sometimes it's been underfunded. But you know, last year alone, I mean, the company put more than $100 million into this fund. Um, so th- there is, um, and, and that's going to go on for quite some time, uh, possibly into the 2030s. Um, so I, I, it doesn't, I, I accept that there's some there's some uh, people who are not going to like the fact that there's there's a risk here with potential asbestos liabilities, but I feel that they've been largely dealt with and uh, and this company can move forward from it. And, and the reality is it does have a good product and that, that good product is allowing it to um, provide cash flow that is, is now compensating victims. JC, any thoughts? Um, well, I, 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 my, my, I was getting quite excited about it a moment ago. <laughs> talking about asbestos. Um, I mean, I, so I think it. So it's doing the right thing by not having just gone bankrupt, uh, gone bust, and uh, and it has set up this fund. I suppose my concern would be what's the tail risk of it having to suddenly. Um, throw extra money into that that we're not anticipating. I suppose that would require a spike of asbestos cases, and I suppose they're time limited in some respects because I mean they can they can uh, um, they can happen sort of thirty odd years after exposure, can't they? But um, that thankfully that exposure is further and further in the past, isn't it? Yes, that's right, and, and you, you can never. And this for me is it's like it's an, as I said, it's a known unknown. You can't know exactly what those terrorists might be, but it, it is you know asbestos hasn't been put in a building for for more than thirty years now. Um, so and yes, there are there are still clearly lots of buildings with asbestos out there, um, but um, the, the the claims experience seems to have been going down, um, and uh, and the, you know there may be this third wave, but um, we we and we can't be sure of that. But but in terms of the you know the fact that this company doesn't have in place a facility to help fund those liabilities. I think that's that's that must be a good thing. But but if someone cuts into a um, uh, you know doing a bit of Easter DIY, cuts into a sheet of James Hardy asbestos fibre cement, um, and then thirty years from now gets um, sick from it, uh, are they uh, is are they going to have to is James Hardy going to have to put into the pot for that? Or is, I, I, mean, I couldn't tell you that. I mean, there is yeah. literally thousands of pages of legalese about yeah. these, this asbestos, and you know, I, I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm a lawyer and understand exactly how it all works. Um, with with companies, we make choices about some things we'll, we'll be happy to to let go, and I, I think that asbestos falls into one of those categories where you can never know exactly what the what what might happen. But the so far, what it seems is that. That um, that liability is being handled and dealt with, um, and we can't we can't know that that uh, down the track there might be this this third wave. Um, that's certainly been a risk we've mentioned, but yeah, it's um, it's something we have to live with. 
And I guess you know actors have made their best models and um, right, have exactly. made their best assumptions. And I suppose the fact that it's no longer being dug dug up out of the ground and manufactured is uh, you know going to reduce do, do a lot to reduce cases, isn't it? That's right. Uh, you provided a perfect segue there, JC. Speaking of digging up <laughs> out of the ground, <laughs> we've once again upgraded South Thirty Two, which sits on the buy list once again for the first time in a couple of years. Um, we upgraded this f- the, in the first instance when it spun out of BHP, and it was um, a successful investment for us then. It's changed a little bit since we sold it, um, and I guess some of the changes really have to do with um, the asset base itself. So the, the the few, I mean, the core of the business has really always been um, it's it's the it's the world's largest and lowest cost manufacturer of manganese, and manganese is a is a material that goes into hardening steel and it's used in a lot of construction or um, aerospace and defense um, and specialty um, industries. It's also um, a large um, produce, uh, producer and refiner of alumina and alumina is the um, raw material that goes into making aluminium and it has um, a large um, uh, metallurgical coal business. Met coal, of course, goes into making steel um, and it's also got um, a couple of base metal mines um, around the world. But the the large part of um, South 32 is really manganese, alumina, and, and some aluminium. And, and those three things contribute most of its profit and asset base. Um, since we since the, the first upgrade of South 32 a couple of years ago, um, South 32's Cannington mine, which is really a, a really high-returning sort of silver and metal mine, has um, fallen away. It's, it's uh, declined, and they haven't reinvested back into that mine. So... It looks like they don't want to spend the capex um, to to get more production out of that mine, but they have found a lookalike mine over in um, in Arizona, which they've bought and they're working on developing. And they've sold a lot of their South African operations as well, and I think that's a good thing. So the South African coal exposure and some South African refineries have been sold. So the asset base is maybe a little bit um, lighter on production assets and heavier on development assets. And that means that um, that there is going to be a little bit of capex to spend. So the fact that South Thirty Two is in a you know it's got, they hold four or five hundred million dollars in net cash, um, I, I wouldn't say that that's earmarked to re- be, to be returned back to shareholders. I think they're going to need to to spend a bit on capex over the next few years. But look at the stuff that they're developing, and they should get relatively good returns on that. Um, and I think the other attraction of South Thirty Two really is that it's a collection of okay quality assets, probably average to slightly above average assets that we're buying at half um, tangible asset value at the moment. It's a really attractive price for what is a really well-managed and decent quality portfolio of mining assets. So I think right. mining... At, yeah. So when, when we bought it before, we, we, you did, it was bought at a, a discount to assets, was it? Yes, it was bought at a... At a I think we first bought it at a at a 20% discount to assets and, and we rapidly that, fell from there. And it's that, it's that way again. So, it's, so I, mean, I suppose for me, and this is, you know, you've said very interestingly in your article, you tried to convince me to buy a resource lot one day. And I, for me, I, I would go, I think you might get to this, is I'd be far more, more interested in Rio rather than this sort of grab bag of slightly weird assets that is yeah. South 32. And that sort of worries me is you, you, 
it seems that and some people can do this is you can just sort of buy when it's on a cyclical downturn and then sell when it has a cyclical upturn. But to me, it's sort of not, it doesn't really fit in my sort of, you know, buying at a sort of discount and then selling at a premium. It's sort of, it's all very hard to do. And I think, you know, a little bit, um, and yeah, and you have these situations where the, the assets change over time, they become more capital intensive or, or management changes and suddenly they want to go and, they'll go and, you know, buy something. So that, that sort of worries me about uh, South 32. So you, you're comfortable with all those things, are you? Yeah, they've sat on a um, uh, they've sat on a, a good cash position for a long time, and they've deployed that cash very slowly and carefully. They've only made really two um, acquisitions, and and both of them are quite significant. But they're also um, quite cheap as well. So they bought a really large um, lookalike of Cannington, which could be a, a you know multi billion dollar mine, and they've actually they're developing that now, and they'll have. Um, more information about that in the few months, which I'll cover off when they do. And similarly, they've they're also bought a, a, a separate mine down in um, South America as well, which looks um, reasonably good as well. You're right that it doesn't have the the, the top tier assets that a BHP and Rio does, but very few miners really have those. I think what it does have is just just decent assets that are well managed. Um, South Thirty Two was the first mining company that I noticed that. Um, that put returns on capital at the front of their um, of their uh, 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 of their reporting, and um, one of their first priorities was returns on capital. They did not care about what they were mining, where they were mining, um, or um, or how much they were mining. They just were, were trying to get decent returns on capital. And after South Thirty Two started doing it, <laughs> very unusual in mining. Yeah. Well. Now it's become kind of the norm in mining. All the big guys have adopted this kind of approach and they all talk about, you know, they, they, you, there was a time only four or five years ago where miners would boast about their um, production and their growth capex and that's flipped. Miners now boast about how low their capex is and how high, how, how high their free cash is. They've almost become dividend conscious businesses now and um, the, the bragging rights now go to the miner who can pay the highest dividend. And um, you've seen that with the big miners in particular, and it, it began with South Thirty Two. That's when I, that's when I think it, it. I first really noticed it. Well before the big guys were doing it, these guys were focusing on business returns um, before mining returns, and and I think we can take some comfort in that. You're right that this is not a business I'd want to own own forever, and I don't intend to. Um, it's a cyclical business. I treat it like a cyclical one. You buy it in the downturn and you sell it in the in better times. Um, you know, there's an argument that we're heading into a downturn now, but the price is, is quite heavily discounted, and I think um, I think that's good enough. I'd I, I'd say um, first of all, I think you did brilliantly with with exactly that. Um, you know, a couple of years ago when we sold it at three fifty or something, everything was was three sixty. Yeah, oh, there you go. <laughs> everything was looking. Um, you know, everything was set fair, and and that's the moment to sell it, and we copped a bit of criticism at the time if I remember rightly selling a bit early sort of thing and um but well, it was it gets, absolutely it got to four dollars yeah to be yeah, yeah well but but you're always going to leave a little bit aren't you and and but so you played that um brilliantly so fair play but um there's always a but <laughs> with these things and I, I yeah I'm, I'm on the side of the fence if you don't want to own something forever then that mm. that's got to be a warning sign and so I suppose I'm a purist in that respect um and 
I mean, look, I think you can make an argument for holding some of these some of these um, iron ore mines. I mean, that's yeah. uh, this is not South 32, but if it's sort of more thinking of Rio. They, they've got 100-year lives, haven't they? Yeah. And um, yeah. and they're the lowest cost producer. Um, and we're going to need this stuff for the next 100 years, at least, you know. And for those, I can I can see an argument. Um, uh, but you want to be the lowest cost producer of, of mines, uh, you know, with mines that have very long lives. Um, uh, that would be, you know, my stipulation. And there aren't too many, as JG said. So I guess we're just uh, prejudiced and, and, and we'll just have to leave you to keep making the returns from uh, buying yes. cheap and, and selling high. Yes, yeah, or, or it's just good at it. We're not. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're never going to get BHP at, at half asset value, though. You know, I think that's the that's the trick. Um, it's the price that really makes this attractive, and I agree that this is not for everyone. And it's, um, you know, your style really determines the stuff you buy more than price often does. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, this is for someone who doesn't mind a cyclical business. I'm more than happy to dabble in cyclicality. I think it's a great way of accessing inefficiency um you know people often trade in and invest in straight lines and they extrapolate um trends into the future even when they're cyclical and i think that's the opportunity that we get with cyclical businesses and cyclical miners in particular i think that's the opportunity we have today so you know i I understand it's not for everyone and i don't think it should be but if you don't mind dabbling in cyclicality he's a good cyclical stock that's um well managed um decent assets and going for a nice cheap price um, so let's um, agree to disagree on that one. I'm still going to get you, JG. I, I, I think yeah, I'm yeah. going to get you into mining stuff. Rio. Then, then, once you got JG, you have to try and get me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd get you with mineral resources, actually. I was really surprised um, you said no to that one. Uh, but, well, I uh, yeah, I'm not sure I said, well, so, yeah, maybe said not at that price. But yeah, I, I, I can see a case. But it's just when it, whenever there's whenever they're down, something else is going to be down as well. So it never yeah. sort of... It's, there's always an alternative opportunity, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Well, I almost got uh, almost got JC into a gold miner a couple of years ago. Seems to recall JC. <laughs> I don't think you did. <laughs> <laughs> you were tempted. I really believe it. Um, yeah, well, let's well, see, JC. Maybe you can um, tempt me with Webjet because it is one that. Um, well, it's actually, gold. both JG, <laughs> both uh, JG and I have been skeptical about Webjet at much higher prices. Now it's it's been truly smashed down. Um, you know, I think we both acknowledge that there is a element of quality to this business. How are you thinking about it now that it's been hit really hard? Um, is it more attractive now, um, or are the risks higher now? Uh, both, I think, is is mm. as is often the case. Um, so Webjet's probably. You know, if you look at the businesses, I suppose beyond the airlines, it's about as exposed um, to this pandemic as you could possibly get. Half its business or 40 odd percent um, uh, of its TDV, about half its EBITDA is um, from the online travel agent, what we you know know as the Webjet business we see advertising everywhere. And the other half is uh, the Webbeds business, which um, basically wholesales uh, um, hotel beds. So we've got uh, selling selling mostly flights, and we've got uh, distributing hotel beds, which are, you know, it's fair to say, going to be fairly quiet areas for the next um, uh, year or so. The problem for Webjet also comes in the uh, on its balance sheet because 
um, it tends to um, collect its money on 30 days um, and uh, pay out over 45 days. So it had more payables than receivables on its balance sheet. Um, and as sales unwind, so does that work in capital position. Mm-hmm. So it has to, so that the balance sheet actually absorbs. So it had 160 odd million of cash on its balance sheet at December, um, but all of that gets absorbed into the um, into its balance sheet, leaving it with a bit of debt. So, you know, the um, at December it only had debt of about 55 million compared to EBITDA of about 89 million. Sorry, this is. Uh, so annual annualized EBITDA of about eight nine million. So um, relatively low debt, you you would think. But but if you turn off revenue for six to twelve months in a business like this, um, you know that you're gonna you're gonna have problems. Um, and further to that, they they sort of revealed the other day with the capital raising that they were beginning to have some trouble collecting some of their receivables yeah. as well. And the banks came out. And this is really what I failed to anticipate in the first place, which is I feel pretty dumb about it. But the, um, you know, the banks uh, um, really are they're in control when you have an EBITDA to net debt um, mm-hmm. uh, covenant. Um, and, and if your EBITDA disappears, then the banks get to tell you what to do. Um, it's really interesting about this particular Sorry, business, yeah, yeah. Um, this negative working capital phenomena. This really, I find this quite interesting because mm. this is a key positive. I mean, when we come across a business that has negative working capital, it means it can grow without injecting um, its own capital, uh, typically, and it can accelerate growth rates. It never really occurred to me before that uh, it operates in reverse. I don't think I've ever really seen it operate in reverse because you don't see no. areas where revenue suddenly no. stops. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? And, yeah. and I think you have to figure, I mean, look, the pandemic didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, pandemics are a fact of life, have been for a long time. I think what has, well, for me anyway, what I failed to anticipate was that we'd go shutting down economies for protracted periods of time. The idea of businesses like this, I mean, you could have looked at Webjet's balance sheet in December and said, oh, that that looks pretty fine. It has cash enough to cover its um, working capital position. Um, But, I mean, as you say, you wouldn't really have been thinking about that. Um, Analysts weren't even thinking about that in in February when it reported its results. Mm. Um, The lockdowns came after, and very quickly people did start thinking about it. Even I started thinking about it, but but still didn't get to the, over the line. In in uh, you know, I saw that it had a hundred million left. And then, um, can and you just explain would, um, the receivable? Why why that's being impaired as well? The receivables book. Well, because that's um that's travel agents uh, going bust really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so I mean, within a month, I mean, what I had understood from the company was that um, they they'd tightened up their criteria for the receivables book and stopped doing business with travel agents that um that they regarded as at risk. And you, you would think that would flow through quite quickly because it's 30 days to collect. Uh, but um, yeah, clearly uh, didn't, you know, hasn't flowed through as, as effectively as they'd hoped. Mm. Um, plus the banks are now saying they want $100 million of, um, of liquidity uh, mm. at all times. So all of this cancel their trips and demand deposits be returned and that sort of thing. Is that the reason why? No, no, no. It's simply the fact that so so when um, when you check into a hotel, um, you uh, th- that's when web jet, uh, web beds the web beds business um, mm. books the revenue mm. um, and it is then owed a receivable um, and it has to pay 
the hotel on 45. So it's owed the receivable by the travel agent on 30 days and it has to pay the receivable over 45 days. So it all, it all um, is after the revenue is booked. Um, it's not, not for bookings. Um, so, uh, sorry, I can't remember where we were at. <laughs> sorry. So does that mean, James, that after following this capital raising, are you happy with the capital position now? Do you think they, they will need to come back to market again? Because this is, as you say, this is really in the eye of the storm. Probably no business has been heavier hit. Well, maybe the airlines. Airlines um, will be about it. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Well, and some retailers probably. But yes. um, uh, look, you know, whether it has to come back depends. So it, they've waived um, the covenants now. The EBITDA to net debt covenants have been waived for June um, and December. Uh, but the EBITDA to net debt covenant still stands for um, next June, uh, June 21. And that'll be based on the preceding four months EBITDA. So they've got enough cash now to see it through. So in terms of having enough cash to see them through, um, uh, they're fine until March next year. Will they actually get, I think one of the things I've always been concerned about is directors never want to see it get too bad. So if, well, the, if, if they buy, if they're now, if they're in sort of November this year and, and, the, and there's, and, and, there's still no revenue coming in. Are they, it's quite likely they'll raise more capital. Well, that, that's right. So yeah. what, what I'm saying is they've got enough cash. Cash is not the problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. The problem is that come March next year, they've actually got to start making some sensible EBITDA. Yeah. Because otherwise they're going to be breaching that come June. Um, and as you say, you know, that they, they'll make a judgment um, later on this year whether yeah. whether that that's likely to happen based on whether. Um, uh, restrictions are being lifted and that kind of thing. Um, now, I'm I'm actually reasonably comfortable with that. I mean, th- this is why we've got a speculative buy on it um, rather than a flat out buy, and why we recommend. Not sure what the um, portfolio weighting limit is, but it's probably three or four percent. Um, and you know, th- th- there are risks, no doubt, but it's quite well diversified. So outside of the Webjet travel agent business, um, which is about forty percent of the transaction value. That's um, the the other sixty odd percent, yeah, which is Webjets, is, is spread. Um, so about half of that is Europe, um, and about a quarter would be Middle East and Africa, and about the other quarter is then Asia Pacific and Americas. So um, it, it's reasonably well spread geographically. So when the rest of the world, you know, uh, my feeling is that by March next year. Um, People are going to be staying in hotels in Europe, um, and and uh, and probably North America as well. I, I, so I'm reasonably confident, um, and uh, uh, but but it's undoubtedly a risk. Is there any scope for um, you know? There's two parts of this business: the web beds and the so the the internet business. Is there a scope to split that out or to separate the company? Maybe take it over. I mean the web. Web beds business is quite a strategic asset. I think it's number two in in the industry. Um, how do how do you think this business looks um, twelve months from now? Do you think it stays the same? Well, I'd, I yeah, I wonder if anyone's going to be. I don't suppose they'll be trying to sell it right now. I'm not sure there's too many buyers yeah, wanting yeah. to buy it right now. So I think twelve months, it probably still looks the same. I think that uh, down the track, there's uh, there's um, 
plenty of reason to separate them. Um, the the travel agent business, we're, we're sort of assuming. I mean, the problem with that is that the, it does does seem to overrun. It's it's we we've been that was I think yours and JG's primary concern with the business um, has been, and and in fact I wrote an article seven or eight years ago saying pretty much the same thing. It just has <laughs> always looked like it has overrun. Um, it keeps doing it, but um, but but it makes makes one worried, um, and so we're sort of penciling in not much growth for that side of the business, um, and I would not mind in the least if someone wanted to take it off their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the web beds business is what's appealing, um, and that had been growing quite quite rapidly, um, you know, in the sort of high teens percent, um, and I think that that can. Um, sort of carry on when the dust settles. Uh, in fact, when the dust settles, they might even be in a stronger position because uh, some of the sort of smaller competitors might have, um, you know, fallen by the wayside. Uh, I mean, just by comparison, so Hotel Beds, the major competitor, that has a market share of about 13 14%, I think. Web, web Beds is sort of 4 or 5%. And then there's a host of, of sort of also rounds um, with 1%. Um, and I think that they're, you know, they'll be hopefully. Um, oh, look, I don't mean to be harsh on them, but I think that the the landscape is going to be particularly tough for them. <laughs> Put it like that. And James, what does um, what's the upside potential here? I guess what worries me about a business like this is that the um, the returns really come from government action, not really the action of management um, or really the industry. I mean, I can see a scenario where if the shutdowns are removed and it's business as usual, then this is um, this is obviously a crazy cheap price for the business. But it only takes, um, you know, if, if we're here in March, as you say, and nothing has changed, then we're, we're back to raising capital. And the second time you, you, you put your money out, your hand out for money, it's a lot worse than the first time. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's true. I mean, but, that, but it, to me, that talks about the downside, not about the upside. Yeah, okay. Um, so the upside, I wouldn't say is dependent. I mean, look, you've got to get over that. Um, if, if we don't get past March next year or, or technically June, but, but, you know, on basis of four months, uh, profits, if we don't get past that, then, um, then we're in trouble, but, uh, you know, the brighter side. So 2022, um, Forecasts uh, range from um, about for the, the broker forecast from around about ten cents to about forty cents. Um, I, I'd be hoping. I mean, before this struck, before the capital raising, they were around a dollar. Um, and so, you know, if you just take the dilution, that gets you down to sort of forty cents. Mm. Naturally, all the brokers have gone a bit lower than that because everyone's expecting the economy to be slower and that sort of thing in twenty twenty two. So, really, it's um, a question of what you expect from that. But whatever you do, expect, I mean, look, I, I would say so. The kind of share price two sixty, two seventy, something like that. Um, I, I reckon that's uh, roughly speaking a PE of you know ten sort of twelve times for. Uh, 2022, um, but you could well then have a business which is growing uh, in the teens, um, and that's uh, that's a pretty attractive price. So I think that there's um, a lot of upside, but you know that's you know you've got to take the risk as well. So, JG, you have thoughts on this one? Yeah, I, I'm still on the fence, and I'm currently working on Flight Center, which is 
having its own capital raising. And I, I was originally keen on Webjet, and now I'm not so sure because just simply I think that the international flight market could be shut for a, a longer time than anyone thinks, or, or certainly lower than everyone, anyone thinks. I mean, even a month ago, I think we all thought, oh, this is just SARS, it'll come back, you know, it'll be back in six months, and that's probably not going to be the case now. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm not averse to putting a toe in the water for this for a sort of speculative recommendation like this I haven't done it yet um but yeah I'm, I'm still not quite over the line yet but um yeah it is, it is a spec buy and i think you know you there's certainly a case for buying into the teeth of the storm because yeah. often it, it is it, it simply is um you know it's simply um markets hate uncertainty so therefore they discount prices so i suspect it's probably cheap um but yeah i'm not quite over the line there with it yet yeah, I, so I, three three percent is the just to, to to be clear is our maximum recommended weighting. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I often find that um, that maximum opportunity comes with maximum uncertainty. Yes, and often your best opportunities are to buy right into the most fear stricken, craziest situation you can find, which in this case would be um, flight center and and webjet. It wouldn't be the. I'm I'm considering just putting um, a small allocation into both and. You know, if the GFC experience is anything to go by, when things return, if these guys survive, a lot of their competitors have been wiped out and there's a, a better runway for improvement um, than people might expect. And there's just so much fear. And like, who is buying this now? I, I, I shudder to think of any institutions going to their bosses, going to their CIOs and saying, oh, yeah, I'd like to buy some Webjet. <laughs> that conversation probably wouldn't go very well. Have you bought it yourself, JC? Yeah, I bought it. Um, I um, oh, geez, it worked out badly for me. I bought <laughs> just after the just after it started trading again. I was uh, I was looking at it. By the time I got to buy, it was up to three forty. So I bought my first lot at three forty, which was just so painful because that was it was only up there. For, it was only up three dollars for an hour or two. <laughs> anyway, I've topped up more further mm-hmm. down. Um, strictly sticking to the three percent. Maximum recommended waiting. Of course, you have. Yes. Yeah. No. I, well, I, in all honesty, I, I, I haven't. But, um, but, but, you know that I have. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant of the risks I'm taking. So, uh, um, and it's a relatively small part. I mean, you know, in, when you look at weightings, it's, it's, it's different if you don't. You know, I mean, uh, you know, it, relative to all my assets, including a, my house and stuff like that, it's a relatively small part still. So. And the horses and boats and everything, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, the ping pong table. Yeah. <laughs> All right, gents, let's, um, let's leave it there. Uh, we'll be back next week for a couple of new stocks and maybe a couple of new presenters as well. We'll see how we go. Um, for the moment, um, JC, JG, you've been great for the last couple of weeks. Thanks for joining me. Cheers. Thanks, Corab. And for everyone else, thank you for listening.